Welcome to the Music Business Podcast. Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends, tactics, and insights from some of the world's brightest minds in music. I'm Jordan Williams of EQT Management. And I'm Sam Heisel from Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Yo, what's up, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good, man. Good, good. Today, I'm, I'm really excited to introduce our guest, uh, Dean Bain. I've been working with him for a little bit uh, via his JV, via EQT, True Panther Sounds. Um, despite them being a JV, they have a, you know, a very great reputation on their own. In the podcast, Dean talks about how, you know, it sort of started officially in 2009 and what it's like today. And I think, you know, it's super interesting to get into what the label is like because he um, started it on his own. He's only ever had two employees and he's really been able to turn it into a, a solid brand in the, mutual, in the music industry and culturally. For sure. I think he's been able to really help develop some incredible artists. King Cruel, Slow Tie, who's really popping off a lot right now. So just hearing his perspective on how to go about developing acts, dealing with different personalities, doing rollouts, how the kind of industry has evolved. Um, what also is fascinating is that Dean is part of the kind of curation board for MoMA PS1, which is a summer party series or warm up at MoMA PS1. It's a MoMA offshoot in Brooklyn. They throw a party every Saturday during the summers. They book, I've seen personally, J. Cole, Cardi B. And then they also have, I mean, Smino from uh, Jordan's roster. JPEG Mafia. JPEG Mafia. They just have such a knack for booking incredible talent, but it's a small venue. They don't have a major budget. So we, we dive into how we dive into booking strategy, both on the booking side and how you can kind of negotiate and get good rates if you have this very strong cultural offering and, and really what to evaluate when looking at a booking. Because it's not always just about getting the bag. Sometimes there's this opportunity to yeah. grow your brand, grow your community, get exposure in the right way. So really enjoyed hearing his perspective on that. So I think you guys are really going to love this episode. So without any further ado, let's get into the show. What's up, Dean? Hi. Welcome to the Music Business Podcast, man. Thank you. Super glad to have you on. Thank you. We're going to go into your past today. We're going to get some people to, to learn from the things that you've done. Hope that's cool. It's cool. It's a, <laughs> it's a dark and stormy road, but, you know, it led me to the music business podcast. So. <laughs> there we go. Um, there's a couple of things that we want to get into today. Obviously, the main one being True Panther Sounds, sort of origin, but also things that our listeners can learn from. And then the other thing is your curation experience at MoMA PS1. Um, so I guess just to start, you know, obviously I've known you for a little bit, worked with you for a little bit, but me and you have never really talked about how True Panther Sounds formed and what your idea behind the label was. Right. So I guess if you could provide some context on that. Okay. Well, I think I can start by saying when I think back on it, it's like there almost wasn't an idea. <laughs> it's embarrassing to admit, but it, it didn't start it as a uh, business, I guess. Like I... Well, maybe I'll back up. Like from very young age, I think I was 12, no, 13 years old when I booked my first show. Whoa. Um, and it was like a, I had put together a compilation tape, a tape. I'm 700 <laughs> years old, but it was a compilation tape of bands and like rappers and a Zydeco band, all types of different genres of from the San Francisco Bay Area, which is I'm from San Francisco Bay Area. And we made like 500 of them. And then I put on a show that was 
I can't believe this actually happened, but I was 13 and it was like two stages. I think there's 22 bands that played. That's um, ridiculous. That's pretty fucking cool, though. <laughs> I honestly, I, I just heard myself say yeah. it. I'm like, that is pretty cool. That's a lot of but people. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, at the time, I was like, well, I don't know. But, and then, you know, I played in kind of do it yourself punk bands and stuff all through my teenage years and like went on tour around the country, like on spring breaks and summer vacations and stuff. And, there's this thing called Book Your Own Fucking Life that was like a, it was a magazine at one point and people would submit their information into the magazine and be like, hey, you know, my mom says I can have shows in my garage here in Tempe, Arizona. So send me like a demo or call me and we'll set up a show. <laughs> and so the first, like the first time I went on tour, it was, I had just turned 15. And we got asked this really horrible band was and we got asked to do kind of like a do-it-yourself tour in a school bus and it went up and down the West Coast. Where'd you get a school bus from? These people, they bought a school bus. It was, <laughs> man, I'm embarrassed. It was called Geek Fest. If that tells you anything about what was going on. But they bought a school bus, they fixed it up. They didn't fix it up well enough because it broke down literally like every other day. It was something like 25 <laughs> people on a school bus. They took out all the seats and just put um, mattresses and stuff. I'm getting off So off you subject. slept. you slept on the, on yeah, the bus. Oh, seat. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I The guy that booked the tour called my mom and was like, I'm a student at UC Berkeley, and this is a really good kind of professional experience, and this is very well organized. All super untrue. It was definitely like a <laughs> bunch of derelicts and stuff. So, and then with this book, Your Own Fucking Life, we'd go on tour and call. I got a job, like a summer job in a call center. And I would, in between like selling, selling like subscriptions of PBS and whatever, I would call these numbers in Book Your Own Fucking Life and be like, I'm in a band. Like, can we come <laughs> to Missoula, Montana? Or can we come whatever? And I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed, you know, we put out, we would put out records and enjoyed putting the artwork together for them. And, and well, we didn't, there was labels would release it, but I enjoyed everything around it, like going to right. a new town and dropping off records at a record store and such, or booking shows in my area, like to complete the circle or whatever. And right. when I went to college, it was the same. Like I, I would book the shows, like the house shows or the concert board or anything like that. It was just a big, big part of my life. It was really, for all intents and purposes, like all I cared about, I think deeply. Maybe because I'm a first-generation immigrant. This is probably a very common story. Like the idea of working in music, it didn't even just not cross my mind. Like <laughs> I, I, it never, it never crossed my mind. It wasn't like, oh, well, that's, there was never a yes, no. It's like, that's it's an option that never came up. Right, like, right. I, at least for, I thought for people with my kind of taste or what I like about music or anything that that wasn't in anywhere near my periphery, but it was something I always did. And so I finished college and worked random jobs and, but always kept doing these same kind of things. Uh, and, then I moved to New York eventually 
What year was that? In 2009. It was kind of like the True Panther started because I was, again, in a really horrible band. I should <laughs> note that like for some reason, the quality of the music I was playing never, that also never crossed my mind, whether that was, <laughs> it was good or bad. I was just like, oh, cool. Get to travel around and see the world and meet people. And, right. And again, like I liked everything about that kind of do-it-yourself uh, approach, except I never really liked playing music or perform. certainly not performing, not <laughs> practicing, not writing music. I liked everything else behind it. Yeah. Um, and when I moved to New York in 2009, we hit, so we started the label to put out a seven inch. That was like a few friends of mine and I mm-hmm. made a recording. I'm like, well, if we each put in 50 bucks or something, I think it's 75 bucks, we can make some seven inches. And we put them out. We made it. We sold 500 of them. And they're like, wow, well, we've made. You sold 500 of them. Yeah. Wow. It was a different time. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, they was like the, in terms of like for vinyl stuff, it was, it was a network. So if you get a few good reviews in like a punk magazine or something, <laughs> it kind of moves along. And we got our money back plus a bit more. And we were like, well, we could either just say we each made like 50 bucks from investing 75 bucks, or we could put out another record, mm-hmm. which we did another friend's thing. Really not having any idea what we we're doing or really having like much ambition for it, to be honest. It was like, let's sell these 500 copies. <laughs> um, and when I moved out here, I sort of had a pretty transformative experience that maybe I'll talk about some other time, but is like a, whatever it was. I had a awakening of some sort and I had a job here at legal aid lined up because I'd been working at a law firm and I walked in on the first day and was like, well, this is a very righteous thing to do, but this isn't like where my heart is at Mm -hmm. really. And kind of didn't move all the way across the country to just not at least try to do what I really my whole life been passionate about and committed to. And I started meeting people and I'm like, wow, you're a weirdo like me and like, <laughs> you have a job doing this, whatnot. Yeah. And so at age 24, I did my first internship at Vice Records. I think I was probably like the most efficient intern they've ever had because <laughs> I had three other jobs. So <laughs> you needed to be efficient. Yeah, I'd come in on my bike and be like, I got to be at the UN <laughs> in three hours. And then after that, I have like a seven hour shift delivering steak frites. So like <laughs> how many goddamn packages do I need to mail? And like, I'm going to get them all out the door me, blah, blah, blah. And learning about, you know, how a record label works. And I was drawn to that label because their roster at the time was very diverse. It was like the streets and the black lips and some metal bands and the boredoms and they put out like a very seminal grime compilation. I was like, well, this is all over the place, but there is a thread through it, like a spirit, I guess. And I found that very compelling because I guess that's aligns with my own taste. Yeah. You know, and through that process, I saw it was like, well, I looked at San Francisco and I looked at the community of sort of friends or people that made music in San Francisco. And it's like, we don't have any of this. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have managers. 
We don't have record labels. Right. We don't have PRs. Just that's not, it doesn't exist in the way it does here. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I don't, I think that's what I, what I thought was maybe, maybe I could be that person for the place that I come from. Like I don't have money to offer. So right. I don't have like the brick and mortar structure of a record label. Right. But I have my time after 9 p.m. <laughs> and I have these contacts I've made here and I can offer to be like the portal for where I come from and the people I grew up with and whose music I like and whatever. I can be that, you know, that can be kind of like both my in and their in, you know. So what do you think is the thread that is through True Panther at this point? Well, at this point, Lord knows. I mean, I think there's <laughs> like a certain type of artist that I'm drawn to. Right. Uh, and it's all kind of wishy-washy terms, but it's like uh, honest and that pushes forward music in some way. You know, it can still be popular music, but they're like, I'm drawn to things that are at least on some level subversive. Right. And like that, yeah, it's music with integrity. And again, that can be the absolute most esoteric uh, thing in the world, or it can be something that hopefully like touches millions of people. But, you know, I guess the thread is, I think I'm always drawn to, yeah, like uh, honest voices and they're ambitious in in their kind of way that they treat their music and um, and that they're unique. Like I'm drawn to personalities. And I think a a few years ago, Richard Russell from XL Mm -hmm. tweeted, I think now uh, creating a situation, which now I wonder how good he feels about. Mm -hmm. But at the time it seemed very cool because like XL signs, one artist a year and that artist is like the one that we want them to be defining their culture. Yeah. Whatever, whatever culture that is like, whether it's a very small like micro scene or a genre or something or an entire country or a continent or uh, a group of people with, you know, for that to be the defining voice of that group. Right. I, I thought that was pretty interesting, you know, and I think having the benefit of for like uh, whatever the opposite of foresight is, <laughs> looking hindsight. back, yeah, hindsight, hindsight. Yeah. yes, <laughs> having the benefit of hindsight, like I think that was important for True Panther very much to have a community to draw from and to put on because I don't know I I think about it a lot. It's like what is the record label? Like it's it can't it has to be bigger than just one one person's taste, you know? Yeah. And there's different ways to like start. There's different ways to start a new record label. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them and most tried and true is to spend a whole shitload of money. When you started, was it just you? Yeah. I mean, my friends and I, we kind of like. Help, but. We did. Yeah. But then everyone kind of lost interest. And I was just like, well, this is, this is important to me. To pursue and and to create what at least felt like at the time like a voice uh, right. and a presence for like the place that I came from. So, so that was like the you know you can spend money or you can draw on the resources you have around you. So the right. creative people, the artists, 
you know, whatever kind of insights there, that, that has value, you know? And I think like a lot of times when, I don't know, over the years I've also talked to plenty of people and they're like, yeah, so I'm going to start a record label. Right. What I do just I do? And like, just, well, just do it. And like, <laughs> well, I don't have the money to sign anybody. I'm like, well, then why your thing need to exist? Right. You know, like if you don't have a resource and I don't mean just like monetary resource, I mean a community. A value add of some yeah, sort. Yeah. Then maybe it's not, you know, right. maybe your lane is something different. Right. But you have to add something and have some kind of value to like draw from, I think. So and you've only had, what's what's like the max amount of people that have ever worked at True Panther like at one time? Two. Two? Yeah. <laughs> and then when did True Panther start? Uh, 2009. So you properly, I mean, it was kind of, you know, right, it was right. A very fly by night thing, but so obviously true Panther now, I believe is a staple in music. People know it. People see the name. Why, why choose to stick with only two people? It's like so, you're a startup without being a startup. Cause, right. cause it's like, it's like you've already sort of made it, but there's still only two people. Yeah. It's boutique. Yeah, right, yeah exactly. Right, right. <laughs> well, the, I mean, I got pretty lucky with the label pretty quickly because after making that decision, I was like, well, I'm going to just start with the people that I know mm-hmm. and I'm going to help them get their music beyond MySpace or something. Right. And we put out three records. And in each case, it was like, I've cobbled together five or $600. And so I'm going to make a vinyl and kind of do the handcraft, some artwork for it, like right. silk screening stuff. And then put it on the internet. And hopefully people buy enough MP3s and footlongs. That's what I call 12 <laughs> inches. Footlongs to, that we can make our money gotta back. distribute the footlongs. Got to get those footlongs out there. Um, $10 footlongs. And, then, <laughs> and uh, hopefully I can make enough money back to put out the next thing, you know. And those first three things all within their own scale, you know, it's another thing that we can maybe talk about later, but it's like the ability. I think everything can be successful. Every project mm-hmm. can be successful if it's scaled properly. Like, so can you talk about, I mean, your journey in working with various artists and helping them like scale properly? Yeah, sure. And Wait, ha- do and you- how priorities like evolve over time. I mean, if you could put the, like a story in the context of like one artist that you're really proud of that you've worked with. Yeah, for sure. Well, here, like think the important thing I'll just finish this up because yeah. it's it. So we got lucky with those first three releases, and then that's when so True Panther was bought. I sold it to Matador Records, which are a part of Beggars Group. Yeah. Um. So that's the biggest independent label group in the world. It's XL mm-hmm. Beggars, 4AD, uh, Matador, and then the imprints of which there's two that lasted, I believe, for longer than a year or two, and those Young Turks and True Panther. Mm-hmm. And so, like, to answer the previous question, we never got bigger or hired more people because kind of, like, in a way, what we have going on with our, you know, it's, like, as far as committed staff, it's very, there's a limited number of people, but then you have the village. Like, Beggars yep. has PR, marketing, sales, et cetera, that work across all the labels. So that was a very big thing to be able to turn around and, you know, all these artists that had entrusted me with their music for nothing. I had nothing to offer them except mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Be like, well, now there's a global network of people that are going to be working to promote and push your mm-hmm. music and stuff. And I think that's why 
maybe on also on another tip, this is probably me being a bad business person, but it's like when we can justify it, like, and by justifying, I mean like when I hit my absolute limit capacity of what I can handle, we'll find some money to hire more people. Right. But until, you know, I just never did that because I think there's always been a larger team, mm-hmm. you know? So, and as far as scaling, I mean, I think there's a few examples I can think of, but we can talk about King Cruel maybe. Love yeah, to, for sure. And that was so. When did the the deal with Beggars Group and Matador? One of the kind of tenets was that we'll always be able to release, you know, five hundred seven inches and put stuff out digitally, and to be able to scale things small, because I felt like that was really. That's like the the guts of the label. It's also how you start relationships with people that maybe are reticent to go and sign a big record deal. That's how you build things, mm-hmm. you know, organically and uh, and creates room for artists to really like find themselves or find their voice or right. whatever. Um, it's not just like, all right, here's your advance. Go make us an album. Okay, the album isn't there so it didn't do so well so there's that you know to right. to build things slowly and with King Cruel when we met he was 15 years old <laughs> um, he's called Zoo Kid I'd heard some music on the internet on what was it I guess it was Bandcamp something I wrote the two English people I knew at the time and was like is this normal because <laughs> to me it sounds extremely special but like does everyone sound like this over there or what? <laughs> and uh, one of those people was like, this is actually pretty good. And then wrote me back a week later. He's like, so I'm managing that kid now. Mm. I'm like, all right, I guess it was pretty good. <laughs> but um, with him, we started, you know, we met, I met him and his mom and his brother at a pub. And it was very clear that it was like, it's not going to work to come in like super hot. Right. You know, for on one like to because we needed to build trust and build like a certain understanding. He's also like an extremely young man. And over the course of doing this, I found this like there's certain kind of like turning points in every artist's life. And they start, they're just making music, right? They're just doing it for fun. And then they hit a point and I was like, is this for fun or am I trying is this for myself, my own enjoyment? Or do I want to like have some fans, mm-hmm. right? And then that's another. And then the next step from that is like, do I want to have fans and like receive praise for this thing that I'm making, or do I want to try to make it a career? And that's another kind of pivotal moment. You think I, I think, and it's possible to navigate that still with integrity, not mm-hmm. compromise the original spirit of what you're doing, but. Did you kind of catch King Cruel like in that part? I mean, like I when he was King making Cruel. that decision? I caught him when he was like, what are you doing in my neighborhood? <laughs> I literally just make music on a four track in my room. And I put it up on Bandcamp really just for my friends, you know? <laughs> and so he had never really considered, you know, what really like what it all meant. Right. Or what it would entail or how it would affect his life, you know? Right. And so I think we're like, well, he had made an EP that was five tracks and there were some amazing songs that, you know, but him kind of working it out. And 
like let's you know let's release this we'll give a push but like a soft push you know like we're not gonna go ask a teenager to go tour the world and right. do a bunch of interviews and things like we're just gonna let the music speak for itself and get it where it can and I think with every release with him a really interesting thing that's happened is that you know there's like a culture of King Cruel mm. and I think it exists independent of any label or publisher or manager or anything and I'm obviously a bit biased but like he exists there's this like rare artists where they kind of can release music whenever they want to Mm -hmm. and like the marketing any of the stuff that we like to do or do it it's all kind of there in the music and in him and there's not too much we can do to help it and there's hopefully not too much we can do to fuck it up you know (laughs) and I think like the place where he is now in terms of you know the way it's scaled it's really like in the most natural way possible to share the music and create some sense of excitement without being too heavy handed or marketing, you know, or anything. So what do you, I mean, with that said, where are you focusing your efforts when it comes to continuing to build momentum on his career? I mean, like in the stages when you really were building the momentum, like what were you really doing in order to kind of build up that level of like clout, if you will? I think it's... How do you get the clout tokens? It's almost like... How do do you stack up the tokens? (laughs) I mean... That's what all the listeners want to know. You know, maybe this isn't how... I argue that some people are born with a bag of tokens, you know? (laughs) But I think like... uh, creating space for him to tell his own story. Like the most boring thing is, you know, having those arguments that involve, you know, at least putting the release on some type of structure or some type of timeline and building it like an adequate level of trust where a person that's very much used to doing everything on their own to be like, you know, well, look, you chose to bring us in, right? Like I didn't hold a gun to your head and ask you to sign to this record label. Mm -hmm. So on some level, like you chose to work with me and I chose to work with this person, like a radio plugger, whatever. And I chose to work with them because I think they're good at what they do. And so they feel very strongly that one song that maybe you yourself aren't crazy about is the single from the album, Mm -hmm. right? And that could really like change the course of, of a campaign. Like you trusted me, like let the chain continue. You know, and like to build that kind of trust with the extended team, like come up with as much as we could do on marketing side to kind of like color in some of the, the shade, like the dark corners mm-hmm. of King Cruel's story that I think most importantly, like we had this conversation at the very beginning of the first, right before the release of the first album. We're mm-hmm. like, the mentality needs to be like, what can we achieve with this artist in terms of like marketing or PR, anything, mm-hmm. assuming zero artist involvement? Like, let's just assume that he's not going to do any interviews He's not going to, you know, it's not like, Archie, can you make us a Spotify playlist? It's not like, can you do, you know what I mean? Like all these kind of like go-tos 
that I think we ask of lots of and if and when he is involved, it'll be like a cherry on top. But yeah, the ideas good, that we come up plan. with. Yeah. Good plan. And it's in just in the capacity that I work with artists too, from a I mean, full on marketing perspective, it's like we definitely have to really get strategic based on how much they really want to put into it and still equip and kind of build an engine that can operate. Obviously it's operating in order to support them, but yeah. as far as their involvement, I mean, that's a very yeah. productive constraint. And I think it led you probably to some good breakthroughs and ways yeah. to approach it. It's a, it's a thin line too, because, you know, if you go too far on that, you're like, what you're putting into the world is like completely detached from, right. it feels very yeah. unnatural Especially you know, if the artists, you know, I work with a few people that want to be involved in everything, but they don't want to be involved in everything. Right, right. It's like, yeah, make sure you run everything by me. But then when the time comes to run things by them, they're not as responsive. Right. Or they're like, you know, you can just kind of handle this on your own. So you're right. That line of like, is this something that I should be doing? Should I be checking it with the artists? I feel right. like with a lot of decisions, that's always in the back of my head. And you just with experience, right. you just get better at what's actually appropriate to bring the artists in. And totally. what isn't. I, I, when I started, it was like every, it was like the artist was damn near managing themselves. Right, <laughs> it was right, like every, right, every right. question that came in, it was like, yo, so what you think about this? It yeah. just was an email that went to a text message. Right. You know what I mean? Email went to a text message where I was texting this, texting, um, you know, my artist. Yeah. And then over time, you realize that they have to make music too. <laughs> like, right. It's like, I've had people hit me like, hey, I'm in the studio right now. And I'm like, oh, fuck, you make music for right. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you're supposed to yeah. be in the studio. Go get yes, that money. Get the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, it's like, all right, well, I have to figure this out. Or right. it's like, about damn time, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully it's not Where's that. Where's that next track coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it's not that. Do you ever have to deal with that? Like pushing artists to make music? It's like, bro. Oh, yeah. Come on, man. So, like, the, <laughs> I mean, on we the. We sign you to chill all day. No. Yeah. I mean, like, there is, I've managed a few people over, and we, me and my colleague, we managed like four artists now. But the first artist that I ever managed, we, I did it for three years. And by the end of it, it really felt like it was unhealthy. So it's like, I felt like I was dragging somebody. Mm -hmm. Like, I would wake up and I would put on, like, a 120 pound backpack and mm -hmm. like take it from every point with, do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. Be like, so this is what's got to get done today. And then you just like, you drag, I don't know. And at that point I promised, I was like, I, I'm never, that's just not a good situation. Like it's, you're not a life coach. You're not like a personal assistant. Mm -hmm. There's, if you spend all of your time, like pushing someone to do what is, their job essentially, then you can't do your job. You can't make them money. You can't build their career. Mm -hmm. You're, I mean, you're literally like a, like a virtual Uber driver or whatever. Totally. And so, yeah, certainly sometimes. And, you know, I think a part of being an ANR or whatever the label is being, that is a bit of ther therapy mm -hmm. where you try to find situations like if, the artist hits a stumbling block in their writing or the production work or how something you try to find like the smoothest point to completion, mm -hmm. you know? And I think, I don't know, some, there's certain instances where I felt like my job is less, it's like, it's less on the label side, it's less creative mm -hmm. and more like where it's just the goal in mind that I have when dealing with this person, it's like, get it finished. 
how do right. you get things finished? And then we make a like a plan or and but that that's the end goal. And it sometimes it almost trumps like what's the perfect sound, what's the perfect thing, mm-hmm. you know? Cause I also think at a certain point in the process, artists, even the most brilliant talented, they just start getting like caught up in themselves and mm-hmm. making minute changes and details that are it's irrelevant you know mm-hmm. either the thing is going to work or it's not and it definitely won't work if it's never finished yeah so getting stuff finished putting it then on a timeline <laughs> putting together a plan mm-hmm. for it with king cruel it's that maybe that was a bad example because it's it's impossible to rein him in i remember like at points of frustration being like why is he like this? You know, and I was like, when I signed him, he told me he got kicked out of school at 12 or 13 or something for being disobedient and not <laughs> listening to like grownups. I'm like, yeah, true. I guess he was <laughs> I'm, at least he levels had expectations yeah. from but the for him was yeah. like, <laughs> We did on the first album, there was, it felt, it was a very like London feeling album, right? Mm-hmm. It felt, it painted a picture of, a place that I know a lot of people didn't listen. You know, they'd never been there. They didn't know like South London. It, it was vivid, you know, vivid right. things. So we're like looking for a way to premiere the album, which was a big deal at the time, mm-hmm. 2011. Well, like, yeah, because blogs were still like huge then too. Right. Websites yeah, were huge. Yeah. So. And so it was like, you know, the kind of hype machine premiere, NPR. It didn't feel, it didn't feel like interactive enough or just kind of it didn't tell a story enough so we're like there's also this kind of surveillance feeling and the kind of claustrophobia and it started out as a complete like psychedelic impossible thought which was like what if we I can't even remember what it was specifically but it was something was like tap into CCTV for <laughs> all the bus lines yeah um like or for a bus line, that's Archie's bus line as it drives around London. And we like have him standing at some stop and doing something and hide Easter eggs on this thing. And like maybe when enough people go to enough of the stops, it'll unlock that. It was like some completely <laughs> absurd thing. And it ended up basically, it was like a night bus ride where the mm-hmm. album was... I think the album the album is really long. It's like seventy two minutes something, and it is a the long loop album. of the bus was about that of his mm. bus. So we just had it was you know you go in, you go to the site, and it was also embeddable, and it's just constantly playing on a loop. And it's like whatever stop it's at, you see the CCTV for the stop, so you kind of see like the block or whatever, wow. and then the bus moves along. And I think it was like short of flying thousands of people to this random residential neighborhood in South London. It's like it brought people into that world in a way that I think and hope like it achieved this feelings like it colored in the music, it colored in the environment and it did, it made it feel like a big deal. Like it was important to us and there's a lot of press about it and da da da. And it involved very little (laughs) <laughs> artist involvement. So, you know, there was that too and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know. Ooh. I already Ooh. forgot the original thing we were talking about. It's all good. I was in, man. All right, I was okay. in. You're on the bus. Yeah, I'm on the bus. The night I'm bus, Looking baby. at that CCTV. Yeah. Um, I want to also talk about 
So I had no idea you had experienced booking shows before. Right. I did not know. So you've always had a passion for it. So with, uh, with MoMA PS1, it was sort of tapping into that passion, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, what is your A&R process like for MoMA PS1, and how does that differ from True uh, Panther? And, and before we jump into that, uh, MoMA PS1 is Museum of Modern Art uh, in Brooklyn. They have this PS1 Saturday party series. How long has it been running? How many it's years? 20, I mean, 20, I think this is 20... First or 22nd 21st or 22nd? 21st, 22nd year. Yeah. Uh, every Saturday during the summer, super progressive bookings uh, across all different genres, a mix of major artists. I remember seeing J. Cole there like yeah. f- five years ago or something. Yeah. And then even, I mean, this summer too, I just look at the lineup. It goes from... Smino, Dean Spencer, Pop Smoke, who's legit like Pop popping Smoke. off yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, to like the Martinez brothers who are like dominant in the house world. Right. right. Um, so back to no, your question. Thank you, Sam. Thank yeah. you. That actually sets it up perfectly for your A&R process for it. Right. For, and obviously you have a, a co-curator too. Right. Um, a, 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 a few, a few. A few, a few. Yeah. yeah. And then so it's like a team, just full context before we dive into your perspective yeah. on the strategy. It's like you're working with a team focusing on curation of these right. lineups. Yeah. So, I mean, they. this is my ninth year booking warm-up. And originally, wow. I think the series, I mean, it's, it's been going for a long time. And at one point, Eliza Ryan, who was the, I believe, performance curator at PS1. She was like, rather than having, you know, I, at that point it had been like a few local DJ and promoter type people booking the whole thing. She's like, why don't we involve people that are in a manner of speaking, it's like they comprise the underground like music community or mm-hmm. whatnot and with different backgrounds, different kind of tastes. Right, different genres, etc. And she's the one that really kind of like brought a bunch of people together. It's changed. There's new faces. Some mm-hmm. people kind of got got over it or left or whatnot. Um, but you know, I think that spirit it still kind of carries on for the way that we program stuff. Which it's a unique situation. It's not like from a programming perspective. It's not like any festival I can think of because there's you know due to years and years of like good programming I think people come they're just like I have no idea who's playing I like Smino I think is there anyone else playing you know something like that Mm -hmm. and so there's our perspective isn't really we're not like out here like mining data (laughs) to see like how many tickets we can sell whatever there is a certain security and especially a, a way that now it's evolved in the time that I've been there. We'll be like, all right, let's, you know, we'll lock in our headliners. Also, our budgets are extremely small for. Yeah, I, that was another thing. I mean, you guys book really well. Do you leverage that a lot in negotiations? Just like the clock. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like I have conversations with like booking agents and major agencies. And I was like, so what's like the average booking rate for X artists? And right. So like that's that's just an impossible question to answer because there's just so much variability in booking rates based on the type of show. I mean, there's yeah. certain shows in in off markets where, sure, I mean, free that date, take a couple extra bags, we'll right. do it. Versus, <laughs> yeah, yeah. versus yeah. like another show where it's in a major market. I mean, your hard ticket, you could command such a higher booking yeah, fee. Yeah. So I'm curious as to how on the booking side you're able to book the caliber of artists you do with such a small budget. Well, I think it's like 
there's the kind of integrity and the respect I think for the series. Mm-hmm. Um, there's enough times that there have been shows that whether it was like Skepta, you know, Skepta was in town and a common mutual friend called me and was like, can Skepta come? Like he has, he has, he's going to the airport in like four hours, but can he stop by and play a few songs? So I'm like, be like okay. Uh, yeah. But this was, this was like, but this was, this uh, yeah. was like yeah. pre-shutdowns. This was Skepta like hanging on the Lower East Side with Wiki. Skepta oh, sure. like not, you but, know, yeah, yeah. and he came and he played a few songs and like, he shut it down. Like, no. It was like there sure, were, the majority down. of the people were like, we're cool, down. like British guys. Sounds sounds good. It was him and Jammer. And they're like, this is all right. We've never heard of this person, whatever, but yeah. people were responsive because I think the audience is pretty open minded. Yeah. You know? And he actually was like came to the next summer and this is post shutdown. And they reached out to us and like he wants to come back and play properly. That's fire. And so that those kind of like Cardi B, whatever, you know, that was her first big moment. There's enough of these moments that we can send, talk to certain artists that are interested in that mm-hmm. and be like, you know, our budget is what it is. We're competing. When we started, when I started for, for electronic music, especially, it was like, you could play a Glasslands. Yeah. Now there's like four extremely high quality, like, proper festivals right right up until this last year there was red bull music like there's ways for them to get their feet for that sure they deserve yeah you know so we're and we're we're also like dancing around those like radius clauses and stuff yeah. but we try to lock in like a headliner ish you know like even if it's not like what hard festival or governor's ball would consider a headliner we're like right. we can if it's not a full-blown like sell 5,000 tickets headline and we're like, we can make a Voltron. Mm-hmm. Like we lock that person that has a following and has, and then we build a lineup around it that, you know, supports Thematic, it so that yeah. when people come out, it's not like oh, I'm buying a ticket to see so-and-so play at this place. It's like, I'm going for a day. Right. And I have a feeling of what that day is going to feel like and be like in this, you know, and okay. I think that helps us create these days that feel kind of like full and, you know, across a right. certain, they give a vibe. And I think as far as the booking process, there is on the committee, especially when we have like a kind of sure thing headline artists, like whether, you know, when it was, I think it was like Cashmere Cat and Skepta for which, you know, the capacity of PS1 is about 4,500 people and like, that's going to fill, that, that'll be fine, you know, or like Tom York or Skrillex or what, you know, we're like, we're going to be fine on tickets. So then I feel like we have this responsibility of it's like, look, the, the monetary part is taken care of. Now we have this platform and like, let's use that platform. We, we have a platform and like a really open-minded audience that seemingly like loves to hear new shit. Mm-hmm. So we're like, let's, if it makes sense, like musically, not numbers wise, but musically, like let's put that person on. Let's put them on right before this huge act. Let's give a local act like a DJ set, you know, in the day and like give them the opportunity to shine and have that moment for themselves. And that's that goes into like building the Voltron, you know, like I think we always 
unfortunately underpay the big artists because we just literally don't have money to pay. Right, right. But we try to like for emerging artists and stuff, we're like, all right, try to pay them fairly and give yeah. them good slots and sometimes better slots than what they could potentially command on their own. Cause there is, there's like this responsibility. I think that we have to, I don't know if educate is the right word, but like present, you know, music that is pushing something forward right. uh, along, you know, as well as making people dance, of course. Totally. All right. And the booking's all done. It's a committee. When we started, it was like, we'd each call out days and, that was the only but, uh, like yeah. true Panther showcase day. It was the first <laughs> one I booked. And at the end of it, was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm curious for you, Jordan, I mean, when it comes to booking strategy, just in like looking at some of the artists on your roster, whether it's uh, like JPEG that's really starting to pop off, get a lot more bookings, um, or even some of the other ones that have been bigger and used well. But I, I think like as a manager, how do you navigate that notion of wanting to take shows and bring money in the door while still trying to command a certain price point and be willing to walk away from a deal when the price isn't right? Well, first of all, the buck stops with the artist. So the artist has to feel like performing. And I've learned that more so in the past few years than I ever have. So you can't just put an artist on tour three, four dates in a row and expect them to be happy at the end of it. And you have to be invested in that too. So that's the first thing that I think about when I get like a show offer. It's like, can this artist do it? Like, how is their mental health? I think about that first because being an artist, I think it demands so much from you, even more than managers when they work, you know, 10 to 15 hours a day. The artist is is really expressing themselves and pulling so much out of them. It's like exhausting. So the first thing I do is ask that question. In terms of balancing how much money is offered versus the look, um, JPEG played MoMA PS1 last year and p- past, you know, knowing Dean culturally, MoMA PS1 is just a really good thing to perform at, mm-hmm. you know, Smino yeah. played this year. It's like, it, it just makes sense. And, and when we, he performed there, it made sense because the audience, it could have been a JPEG show. Right. Like, and, and we, I know not everyone there knew JPEG, you know? Um, but the audience was so warm, um, the venue is such a great, cool venue. Yeah. I think all of those things, if you have that going for you, like, yeah, you can ask for like a little bit less. You know what I'm right. saying? I think if it's like, you know, a random date, and it, it really depends on the college, but if it's like a random college date, it's like, you know, let's see what we can get out of this. Right. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, there are like college festivals and stuff like that that are really cool looks in general for artists. Mm-hmm. But it's just constantly balancing and also not like putting too much, in my opinion, putting too much of a standard in your head. Obviously, you have to know under a certain amount. Like, you have to really question why you're doing it and if it makes sense. Like, if an artist is booking one-offs for 20, 25K and somebody offers 2K, obviously that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But also looking at each book, uh, booking with an open mind if it is in the range right. that is appropriate for that artist's lifestyle. Yeah. Is that in line with kind of how so, you... Sort of. I, I have like... This is something I think about a lot in terms, not so much like college necessarily, but there, this like on the live side, this whole other uh, category of live, you know, the sponsored show or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think like I've seen it happen a bunch. I've seen it happen both ways. Like mm-hmm. what I think is the right way and then the wrong, you know, where it's like, all right, 
I'm an artist in this place. I can play a show and a hundred people will buy tickets, a thousand mm-hmm. people will buy tickets. So that's what my price is, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, especially when you're starting out, like I still believe touring it does, it builds, right. mm-hmm. you know, everything around the show, every like, but like going and playing and like ideally selling out the rooms that you can sell to people that are buying a hard ticket to see you play. That ticket is like so valuable and but then all of a sudden it's like Skittles comes knocking and like will you play our Skittles <laughs> like fun lounge in the I don't know like whatever the top of the Eiffel Tower right, 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 right. and we're paying you like 50 grand and like and so then that person turns around and like well I guess my price is 50 grand now but it's like right. the money not every dollar is equal right. yeah and like that I actually think and you you see artists like going in this route, you know, certain people, especially if it's like they have a brand or they represent something that is really like sellable, you know. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I'm going on tour. I'm playing in New York. I'm playing Google House. In Chicago, I'm playing Soho House. In San Francisco, I'm playing like Snickers uh, <laughs> brought to you by PlayStation, whatever. And there's it's it's all like these are the fees and everyone there is on some mailing list or is there for free drinks or whatever. Right. Right. And it's like, that doesn't build it's cash, but it it also, it's like you're a, you're taking away your other show in that market. Yeah. And there might be a handful of people, but at the end of the day, those people aren't there for you or for the, you know, for you as mean the artist to discover something either there for this experience, whatever the brand and that stuff, I think if you don't balance it off with building like a strong, self-sustaining live business, yeah, it dries up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have like, what do you have then? You know, totally. like, yeah. and I think, I don't know, I keep reusing these words and I feel like I'm starting to sound like some com- wavy gravy ass, <laughs> like hippie person. But it's like, if you do, you need to like build and have the integrity and like, build in line with you know grow with your audience or whatever and i think skipping to this other like the corporate the sponsored thing it if it's not balanced it leads to i don't know you just end up in the ether yeah i think also when i think about those specifically sometimes it can be like a much bigger statement than just the check you know what i mean yeah if you're aligning with a brand yeah you also have to look at the brand and what mm-hmm. that means for your brand if yep. you align with them at that point, you know? So totally. Yeah, it's it's one hundred percent. Like that they're even if the check is big, yeah, sometimes what they're actually getting from you is like brand equity. Yeah, they're and you, Which is unfair on your side. Yeah, yeah it can be like they it's owe you brand. more. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you got to be careful with that too. For sure. I do love college shows. I go to the college shows when yeah. we book them because I'm hey. obviously not that old. That's a different, that, I wasn't talking about that. Channel is, uh, is crazy college wild. Yeah, man no, days. I just went to SUNY Purchase a, a couple months oh, ago. I love and thing. I was yeah. like, man, this is fucking lit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go to more college shows. Like, I shit. Mean, you, 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 have to, you have to get paid what you like the what you can and because that's that's a situation where it's like you know it's not your fee isn't like tickets or yeah. the sponsor or whatever it's 
it's a budget that's set aside for this thing. And right. like, it's still going to be fun. Like yeah. those are some people that do like, they come and they want to party and go crazy yeah. and like love the music. That's right. the, no shade at college shows. Yeah, Shout out college shows. College boards worldwide. Respect. I mean, they're also, those kids are just thrown into booking immediately yeah. with no experience. So it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, Did you okay. guys do that in school? What? Booking shows? Booking no, show. I, had a, I, I, I mean, had a blog actually. I didn't do it for my school, but yeah. I did it like me and some buddies started like a party company where we would broker deals in the city. I went to school in the Bronx at Fordham and we'd like broker deals with venues in the city, book different college DJs. One party, two, we ran like a New York college DJ competition to get everybody to like try and get as many votes as possible to win the competition for a chance to DJ at like a notable venue. Part of that was to get like cool DJs. Part of it was just to like market the fuck out of the party by getting all these DJs to like push votes really hard. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, classic. Cool. So let's get to these hot takes. We got a segment where it's hot takes, uh, things we don't necessarily believe in, but things that we're just hearing. Okay. We may making their way, making their waves through the Point streets. Is you're not supposed to know. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm terrified and excited. Independent labels can't compete with majors. Disagree. <laughs> Why? Well, I think like in <laughs> cert, like this kind of goes back to this conversation of like scale, you know. Right. And I think one area that I haven't seen like conclusive evidence that independent labels can compete is. Uh, radio commercial, and when I say radio, I literally mean commercial radio in the United States. Mm-hmm. Everywhere else, you don't need a few hundred thousand dollars to do a commercial radio campaign, right? I think, like, on the flip side, absolutely they can because you don't like we live in a world where it's like the streams don't lie, you know, like you can access the same, you can access those people, you, you don't need as much kind of capital as you did then there's there's companies like Merlin that are acting on behalf of the indies to make sure yeah. that they are getting the same deals yep. from the DSPs as the majors are I mean like my hot take to see your hot take is <laughs> not every artist needs a record label Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm not just talking about Chance the Rapper I right. mean like a lot of artists yeah. and a lot of the ones that I think like are email or text somehow. I don't know how they get my number, but like we'll text <laughs> Jordan or I and be like, man, you need to, and it's like, you can make money actually. Like some of these things you don't need from right. anybody. Right. And it's about finding your lane and carving, like finding the place where you are, can, res- you know, finding your kind of hub, whether mm-hmm. it's press support, whether you have a crazy live business, whether you're, just magically by being like some invisible person, like stream completely crazy, you know, like right. find your lane. And, but yeah, I, I definitely don't think so. This is my little story. Are we running low on time? No, we're good. This is like a combination story and a flex, right? So <laughs> I was like, the first three weekend songs came out, uh, loft music, but me and every other nerd like me that like maybe Grew up listening to both like, oh, there's a Beach House sample and, you know, R&B. We're like, oh, my God, these things, they've finally merged Mm -hmm. into this like. And so I went on like a crazy internet hunt, DM Lamar 
And he wrote me back. And I was like, I saw you guys reposted. Uh, you're excited that the fader liked your stuff. It, they were all about like mystery at the time. You know, they didn't know who it was, whatever, how many people. And like, I saw you reposted fader. Like, just to let you know, my record label has had two artists on the cover of fader this year. So, well, <laughs> and he wrote back and he was like, Glasser is sick. And Glasser was one of those artists. And he's like, here's my number. I'm like, okay. So I called him. And they let me come to Toronto. Like I was the first A&R person to be like allowed to have a visitation with the weekend. <laughs> and I went up and I stayed for three days and we hung out and we kind of like, we kept the conversation going along. At one point it was like, oh, we'll do a vinyl pressing of, of uh, loft music. What was the first project? Life, wait, something the party. Er, the, wait, the... The, the first mixtape. Oh. Party, party, party. Is that what it's called? No, but it's <laughs> something about party. But yeah, we're talking. And like in that time, and I like went to beggars and I was like, all right, you guys, what is the craziest deal we can do? You know, like mm-hmm. to get to bring this in. And we came up with something that felt super crazy for us as an yeah. indie. And of course they were like, man, No. Like we're <laughs> we're in the studio, whatever. I think about this all the time, and I thought about this especially when the weekend had, you know, the the full like Michael Jackson glow up, right? And I was like, in the Dirty Diana remix, yeah. yeah. And I was like, they, you know, we spend all of our time talking. It's like, oh yeah, I signed this, I signed this, we got this deal done, whatever. And I was listening to that music, and like, I would have no idea how to make this happen, mm-hmm. right? Like, and that's, I think, as far as indies versus majors, you know, the certain elements of like the construction of really like the highest echelon of pop, pop, pop music. I don't have those phone numbers and I don't think a lot of people at indies necessarily do. Right. And like that is maybe to, to put a lid on my like way too long answer to this <laughs> question. It's like, that's a, we don't have that ability and that infrastructure and like that staff. Right. I say we now. I'm not even sure if True Panther's indie anymore either, but that's a whole other yeah. conversation. Yeah, sure. yeah. But like, you know, that's not something that independent labels have always, I think, the biggest successes have come from artists that essentially create their own music without a machine, you know, yeah, at least on sure. the music creation level. But otherwise, no, I don't think so. I think like, and frankly, I think as far as the bag, the advance, whatever, I think there are some indies that can and do compete with majors. Mm-hmm. But like on the tail end of that, like after that advance, after an artist reaches a certain level, the advance, I think in a lot of cases, it's just a gesture or something. Yeah. Because, you, you know, it's in the end of the day, it's a loan. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I know there's a lot of artists that are now they're like, what am I giving up in exchange for this money that I don't really even need necessarily. And I think there's like, we're in the middle of a big shift on that front, both for indie artists and popular artists and, you know, artists starting their own labels. Right. All right. We got another one. All right. Last one. I promise it'll be shorter this time. No, it's all good. Um, UK rap doesn't have crossover potential in the US. <sighs> Whoa. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, just for the listeners too, I think this is like a unique question just given or a good question for yeah, Dean given all his experience in the UK market. I think, damn, I'm sorry, slow tie. I think <laughs> if we're talking about like, again, like popular commercial radio, then I don't, I don't think so. Um, Interesting. Except in the context of like pop, you know, of features and like essentially like hip hop that isn't hip hop anymore. It's like pop with rapping on it. Mm -hmm. And and in that case, I don't think it matters where it's, it can be from Estonia with like a New Zealand rapper, you know, it's the song, the song decides. But I think the, my experience with both King Cruel and with Slow Tie Okay, as a counterpoint, Dave, right? Dave is a hugely successful rapper in the UK. He made an amazing album. Um, It's gotten every accolade. It's like hugely successful there. I think here it's like crickets, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, and my theory on this is that it could, like, same with Octavian, maybe same to a certain extent with Skepta. Like if it's in the middle, if it's like, well, this could be from anywhere, maybe sort of like it's kind of it has a UK vibe, but it could be American. It could be Canadian, could be whatever. It's hip hop. It's rap. It's like part of a global sound. I think that it's a challenge. I'll say if you ever end up at like a music conference, like, you mm-hmm. know, certain countries, they'll be like, come see our local artists and everybody, half the art bands that you see or singers, whatever, they'll be like. This is Denmark's Radiohead, <laughs> you know, and be like, well, the world probably like outside of Denmark, like people have just Radiohead, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and so like why, unless there's something that is like uniquely of the place where you are, like where's what's your unique voice, right? But it's I think a lot of people their eyes are gonna gloss over, you know, but like with with King Cruel and with Slow Tie, I think like. They're decidedly not the center. They're very mm-hmm. much like not from anywhere. Right. right. It's hyper like you get a clear picture of like what the fabric on the couch that they're sitting on looks right. like, like what that house looks like. And I think when something is so feels like so totally alien, I guess, to an American and it's such a vivid kind of other, that's I think the thing that can connect. Right. Um, because it's it's an experience, you know, it's like A, it's an experience, and B, there's shitty town there's a lot more like shitty towns and cities in the world than there are like cultural capitals, you right. know? Totally. And so if that's the, like for slow tie, it's like I've been to Northampton tons of times in my life, but I've never been to Northampton. But it's so like it's of so of his experience that play, and that's what I think like connects. Right. So I don't know. Is that and yeah? I'll tell yeah. you what else. When we did the Facebook, whatever we did the ads for Facebook that fit on our end in the states. This is just kind of like a nail. I don't even want to end on this tub subject, but like all the comments, it was very much to that point. It was like, what the fuck is he saying? <laughs> and like, what is this guy like? This is why British people shouldn't rap. Damn. 
I just had so good though. I don't know. No, I mean, it's interesting, (laughs) and I think it's going to take time for the market to change. I mean, I do think, generally speaking, and you are much deeper in this game than I am, but I think the UK rap scene is dominating the UK market, whereas the American rap music used to have a much stronger like hold there. And I think too, like, I mean, this subjective opinion, but there's a lot of like random like UK rappers and artists that I really fuck with. Lyle Carner. I mean, there's some like really interesting, credible people. So I think it's uh, it's definitely changing. I think on the landscape of like hip hop and which is progressing a lot and evolving a lot in general. I mean, I might not at this current time have like the major crossover pop potential per your point, but I think getting to that pop phase, it does tend to have like a true slow grow. And at the same time too, there's also like pop shouldn't be the fucking goal. Like there's so many artists that like thrive and build thriving fan bases um, within like niche genres, and and they're still yeah. rich. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. Like, they, I like mean, that's still- that's literally what I was gonna say. Was like, is we should reevaluate what our definition of crossover is. Right. It's mm-hmm. like if you turn on Hot ninety seven, do you hear Stormzy? Right. Do you hear Skepta? No. Like, could they come and play two nights at Terminal Five in mm-hmm. New York? Sell ten thousand, you know, five to ten thousand tickets in the market. Like, have rabid fan bases. All yeah, of course. Yeah. But, like that's. A magical thing about this yeah. time we're living in is this the crossover if if all it means is a radio hit, yeah, I mean, I don't think so, but it doesn't matter that that is a successful crossover. I yeah. have like two little notes yeah. is this annoying is it no, right? no, go ahead. so Matador released they co-released the Dizzy Rascal albums with uh XL so it's mm-hmm. XL outside North America, and they did the the boy in the corner and like the, they did the first two albums. Right. And they is, you know, that's like the most London sounding at that time, especially it sounded like foreign language, mm-hmm. you know? And, but press liked it. Like people like underground music, like they, so they brought him over, played some shows and they did like a radio interview on, I think hot 90, like 92, three, uh, the, was it the beat, the LA yeah. station? Yeah. 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 And they had, an interview with him and he's like, yeah, cool. I'm not going to do the accent. So no, I'm Dizzy Rascal. <laughs> this right. is my album, Boy in the Corner. And who is it Big Boy? Who's the, yeah. who, And he was like, man, no disrespect. Can you repeat I, what I the, your Big album Boy is? I Power 105, actually. You're Big right. Boy? Yeah. Big Boy's out in LA. Yeah, yeah Power, that's, it was in LA. Yeah, it was Power it was 105. Power 105. Yeah. It might have been one of those details uh-huh. I got wrong. but And he's like, could you just repeat what you said? And he's like, yeah, boy in the corner, you know, he's like, man, I'm sorry. Again, I'm not trying to be like disrespectful here, but like, could you just spell it? (laughs) And he's like, B-O-Y, whatever. And it's like from, we got from that point where, I mean, there literally is like, can UK rap crossover? No, like you can't even, we can't, our ears can't understand what (laughs) this dude is saying. And like now at this point, the hottest song of the summer in the U.S. or in New York, Pop Smoke, Welcome to the Party is UK rap. Right. With a New York rapper. Right. right. The production. The produ- it's yeah. UK Drill, which is like, you know, UK's version of Chicago Drill, but it's decidedly a UK production. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, now maybe that's like the Trojan horse. Yeah. Right. It's like the... 
you know, it's, it's constantly evolving market. And I, I definitely think it will yeah. continue to build momentum. Undoubtedly yeah. in the US. So, team. Okay. Thanks, man. Thanks Thank for coming you. out. Thanks I'll, for having me. I'll see me. you at the office tomorrow. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> tomorrow. Right, 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 right. Man, super excited uh, for everybody in New York. Be sure to pull up to the Mum PS1 if you're trying to yeah. turn up. But thank you very much, man. Super excited for everything you have in store. And uh, yeah. thanks for shedding some light out here. Thank you. Thought that was a great episode, bro. Yeah, that me too, man. Episode, man. For um, sure. What'd you like? I, the, my favorite part was talking about what it was like booking Moment PS1. I just think, I just think it's such an interesting perspective being on the board of such a, a cultural phenomenon in New York, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about how he goes about that process and, and honestly, or lack of process, just being like, hey, this artist is cool, but he didn't say it on the podcast, but he's able to do that and say, hey, this artist is cool and book them because of the history he has as an A&R. You know, he can, totally. he can be casual like that totally. and then it'd be somebody that actually blows up in three or four years. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah. I also think it's cool too. I mean, he's been running True Panther for 10 years at this point, founded in 2009. Yeah. I mean, he keeps the boutique team. He did partner with like a network, a larger organization that does represent and kind of have a portfolio of other like smaller independent labels. But I think it's just a testament to the fact too that it's like, there's a lot of white space in this industry. I mean, it's not as simple as like major booking agencies and major record labels. Yeah. I think you can build very sustainable businesses and really work with the music you love, do what you love. And I think too, I also like, this reminded me of the episode we just also did with Gavin, but how he was working at that law firm, walked in and he's like, this just isn't it. And yeah, I think happens. I think you have to take that leap. There's times when you're presented with these opportunities and I think oftentimes we're trained and conditioned to really take the choice that may lead towards security. But I think anybody that does anything truly great in their life are the people that see these opportunities to take a risk, take, take a leap and do that. And I think Dean has been able to do that really well and really excited for everything that he's got in store. Yeah. So thank you guys, as always, for tuning into the show. Hit us up on Instagram at Music Business Podcast. Let us know what you think. We're constantly cutting up different micro content and really want to just hear if you guys could shoot us a DM about one thing you really want to learn about in the upcoming episode. We'd really appreciate it. Constantly looking to kind of push forward and improve this podcast. So it's uh, because we out here. We're looking out for you. (laughs) We out here. Help us help you. All right. And on that note, much love. Peace out.